I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a double and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me you make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and it's time for me to give you a little bit of a... I don't really know what to call it. A mea culpa, perhaps. But basically what's going on is, usually what you would be hearing right now is another entry in my big book report series with Chris Honeywell, but... Unfortunately, the current installment of the Big Book Report, it's missing something very important. And until such time as there's an opportunity for me and Honeywell to sit down and talk about all that stuff and get everything recorded and fixed up the way it needs to be, well, I'm just not going to release that episode. So that's the decision I've made. I'm sorry if this is an inconvenience to any of you, but... If I'm going to release something, I want it to be something that I believe in. And the way that it is right now, I don't believe in that episode of the Big Book Report yet. Right? And just to be clear, that's not any kind of a reflection on Chris Honeywell. Uh, and for that matter, you know what? It's not even really a, a, a reflection on me. It's just that Honeywell has been insanely busy lately. This is a very busy time of year for him. And... As it happens, I'm settling into my new job, and it's a very busy time for me as well. So it's not that one of us is the bad guy or something like that. It's just really, as much as anything, it's just it's an issue of scheduling, really, is what it comes down to. So, like I say, there are no heroes in this. There are no villains. It's just kind of life bullshit that's getting in the way. And so, like I say, until such time as that episode of The Big Book Report is ready to go and basically done to my satisfaction, 
I'm just not going to release it, guys. So I don't know how long it's going to take to get everything fixed up just the way I want it to be. But until that happens, I'm not. Uh, I'm just going to sit on that episode of the Big Book Report, guys. So sorry about that. So. Nevertheless, I do have to release an episode this week, and so what I've decided to do is I, I I don't want this to come off like this is my official show on this subject. It's just something that just sort of occurred to me the other day, and I felt like I should talk about it somewhere, and being as I've got a kind of obvious gap now in my release schedule... This seemed like a pretty convenient spot to talk about the Superboy TV show. Now, for those of you who really weren't tuning into very much TV in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a Superboy TV show going for a while there. And basically, the shtick of it really came down to this. Alexander... Actually, I think Alexander Salkind might have actually been dead by that point. I don't actually know. But the Saul Kinds, they pretty well exploited all of the Superman, I guess, media that they had the legal rights to, except for one thing. They'd done Superman movies and apparently made a fucking fortune in the process. They, they also made a Supergirl movie and apparently lost a fortune in the process. And so when you think about it, the process of elimination pretty much only takes you to one other character that they can work with. And it really did have to be one other character because I think by 1988, when the Superboy TV show premiered, I, well, they for sure had sold the Superman film rights to the Canon Film Group. And that's actually going to come back up in just a couple of minutes, actually, that little factoid. And I think they may have actually sold the Supergirl film rights back to Warner Brothers by this point. It's kind of hard to remember, but I swear to think it was right around then. But irrespective, the only thing they really had legal rights to at this point, and by this point I mean at that time in the 1980s, you know, 1988, the only Superman thing they had the legal rights to anymore was Superboy. And so... Apparently, somebody decided that Superboy is fertile ground for not just adapting into live action, but specifically a TV show. And just because of the legalities of the situation, somebody in the Salkind family had to be involved with the production of this TV show, or else it's just fucking not legal. You know, it's not legal to do this. So, at least to start with, Alexander Salkind, if you believe the way that some people tell it, he was sort of a producer in name only. You know, he wasn't actually a producer in the, I guess, the accepted creative overseer sense of the word, at least not at first. And then over time, he developed, shall we say, more and more control over the TV show, right? I don't know how true that is. All I know is that the show got off to a very rough start. You know, I think we can all pretty well agree on that. But one of the things about this show that kind of troubled me from the get-go was just trying to figure out what the fuck am I even watching here? You know, because guys, even as a kid, I was a little bit of a stickler for continuity. And 
I could not, for the life of me, figure out where the Superboy TV show fit into anything. And so it was one of those things that, it, it on the one hand, it's not like that ruined my enjoyment of the show, because it really didn't. You know, I mean, I still got into the show. I still enjoyed it. But it's like, I couldn't get my head around what exactly this is supposed to be, right? So... Flash forward about 20 years, and the first season of the Superboy TV show was released on DVD in all of its kind of 80s cheesy glory, and son of a bitch, I was actually able to kind of get my head around what exactly this is supposed to be. Like, where does this fit into anything, you know? And basically, the way I've kind of come to rationalize Superboy as a TV show is that this is basically the Richard Donner version of Superman, right? This is that guy that we saw in Superman the movie. And the instant I say that, probably almost as like a reflexive type of reaction, what a lot of you are thinking is, but Magnus, but Magnus, he was never Superboy in Superman the movie, so just what the fuck are you talking about? And I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Basically, what we're seeing in the Superboy TV show, I think, is it's not just the, the Donner Superman, as I say. This is an alternate universe, Donner Superman, right? This is a version of the Richard Donner uh, Superman that never saw the light of day in theaters, but there came a crucial point of divergence in this character's history where instead of going to the uh, the Antarctic for, what was it, like 12 years or something like that, of Kryptonian brainwashing, I mean Kryptonian training with Jarrell, he basically became Superboy and basically took on his costumed identity and his secret identity, that whole shtick, way before the movie version ever did. And that is really the crucial point of divergence. And so from there, what we're seeing is basically what the movie version of Superman could have done, what he might have been like had he not been ensconced in the Fortress of Solitude for all those years, and instead actually lived life, actually had a life in his late teens and all through his 20s and everything, instead of being trapped in the ice palace, actually lived life, you know, and been shaped by certain experiences. You know, that I think is the shtick of the show. Now, guys, the reality of the situation is that Superboy as a TV show, it's a half hour adventure show for kids from the 80s. Okay, so there's a limit to how much mythos and how much universe building and all of that kind of stuff that they're really going to do on the show. What I'm doing is reading between a shitload of lines, but I do believe that my interpretation of Superboy as a TV show is completely valid. And just from a from a, a production standpoint, I think it I think it actually does make sense to to at least risk doing a Superboy TV show with more or less the same caliber of effects that were used in the Christopher Reeve movies, just because by the time of the the mid to late 80s, 
the effects crew that had made the Superman films, they knew their business. They knew how to do those effects. And so it might be reasonable to think that, you know what, maybe they can do, not, not just do these effects on a TV budget, do these effects on a TV schedule. And I think the proof is in the pudding. I mean, I, not necessarily every single visual effects shot in Super, the Superboy TV show is amazingly well done. But I'll tell you one thing. The flying effects in the Superboy TV show beat the shit out of just about everything that we saw in Lois and Clark as a TV show. So, you know, in the main, I think it was, at at the very least, it was something that was pretty well worth doing. But to circle back to, I guess, the mythos angle and the continuity stuff and how all of this fits into anything, I mentioned a minute ago what I called a crucial point of divergence. And like I say, the... When I was rewatching all of this in 2006, I was again struck by the fact that I don't know what exactly this is. I mean, on the one on the one hand, you could kind of think of this as being I guess Elia Salkind's vision of what Superboy could be, but I never once, either as a kid or as an adult, watched this and thought that this that we were supposed to interpret this Superboy TV show as its own thing. You know, uh, this is, you know, in, in, in the same kind of way that Smallville is its own version of Superman or Superman, the animated series is its own version of Superman or Lois and Clark is its own version of Superman. I never got that sense about Superboy. I never got the sense that this was supposed to be its own version of Superboy or its own version of Superman. I've never been able to shake the suspicion that this has some kind of relation to the movies and not just because not just because Ilya Salkind is the executive producer of the TV show, there was just something very familiar about this show. It had a, a lot of Superman movie iconography associated with it, you know? And so maybe it was just because the fact that, and of course now their names are escaping me, um, Stuart Whitman, who played Jonathan Kent, and I want to say this chick's name is... Uh, Shalom Jens, who played Martha Kent, they did look like Jonathan and Martha kind of, sort of, maybe in a way from the movies, a little bit. And John Hames Newton, he looked not, he, he wasn't exactly Jeff East's spitting image from Superman the movie, but he was the same type. You know, he's not the tallest guy in the world. He's not the most massive, uh, uh, muscular guy in, in the world, you know, he was a little bit shorter, a little bit leaner, you know, a little bit lankier. And it, he just, he, John Hames Newton, at least at the time that he did the show, he just seemed very Jeff East to me, you know? And it was just, maybe it's just a confluence of all of those things that they all sort of work together inside of my imagination. And, convinced me that this is supposed to be in some way or another the Richard Donner Superman. And you know what, guys? All of this could be in my head. But those are my reasons, at least in part, for thinking that this has something to do with the Richard Donner Superman. But again, coming back to this this thing that I call the crucial point of divergence, obviously this can't literally be 
the Richard Donner Superman, because like I say, he was never actually Superboy in the first place. So how do you reconcile the two? Well, you reconcile the two by realizing that the Superboy TV show is an alternate universe, right? There's an alternate timeline, apparently, floating around where young Clark, when he was a senior in high school, in, Super, in Superman the movie, his real come-to-Jesus moment is when Jonathan Kent dies from a heart attack. And in spite of everything that, that Clark is capable of doing with his superpowers, in spite of everything that, that he believes should be within his, within his power, you know, all of the things that he should be able to control, Jonathan Kent still died. And that had, obviously, a very big impact on on Clark. But really, before he had a chance to really, uh, I guess, internalize that and process that, in pretty fucking short order, Jarrell summons Clark to, well, the North. And from there, his Kryptonian brainwashing, I mean, his Kryptonian training begins. And out of that comes... Superman, dun da 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 But you're still kind of left, you know, with the... I guess the realization that Clark in Superman the movie, it, it's like Jonathan dies, and then that's just kind of the end of it, you know? Yeah, I fucked up, but hey, Space Dad's calling me. And what I think, and again, we're talking about headcanon here, so I can't be right and I can't be wrong. This is just all in my imagination. But what I think is going on in Superboy the TV show is Clark was able to save Jonathan. Jonathan had the same heart attack that we saw in Superman the movie. He would have died just like we saw in Superman the movie. But unlike in Superman the movie, this is the crucial point of divergence. Clark was actually able to save Jonathan. And that is where the timeline of Superboy as a TV show breaks away from the timeline of Superman the movie. And so what we're what I think we can infer from all of this is that Clark found the the crystal off screen, you understand. He found the crystal and he basically got a crash course in who, he, maybe not even so much who he is, but what he can do, what his powers are, and ultimately what his mission on Earth can be. So if you want to basically keep a mental timeline in your head, what you can basically figure is that at the age of 18, Clark Kent was basically his, his father, Jarrell, Sorry, his father, Jonathan, suffered a heart attack. But in the movie, Jonathan died. That's it. In the TV show, Clark was able to save him. And I think that impressed Jarrell in in the the Superboy TV show, right? I think Jarrell saw that and said, you know what? Instead of brainwashing, I mean instead of training this kid, I think what I'm gonna do is just Give him a little bit of a crash course on 
what his powers are, and then give him an idea of what his mission can be, but otherwise let him define it for himself. And so, if you, like I say, if you want to have a timeline in your head, at the age of 18, young Clark was able to save Jonathan in the Superboy, the TV show timeline. He was able to save Jonathan, so maybe he went off to the Fortress of Solitude for six months. Maybe he didn't even go to the Fortress of Solitude. Maybe that green crystal is, was able to instruct Clark on the high points of what he needs to know, and then it was able to provide him with his Superman outfit, or Superboy outfit, really, and then say, hey, it's all you now, dude. Go out there and tear it up. And that's what Clark decides to do. And he knows that he's going to be going to college soon, so it doesn't really make very much sense to make his big public debut as Superboy. Not before he goes to college. Wouldn't it be kind of suspicious if Clark basically makes his big debut in Smallville as Superboy, then two months later he graduates from high school, then three months after that he moves to wherever, I guess, what is it? Is it Schusterville? in Florida, and then Superboy just coincidentally tags along for the ride. Now, in, the, in these circumstances, it actually makes more sense for Clark just to kind of keep this to himself for a couple of months, make his big debut in Florida as Superboy, and then from there, build toward his own destiny and define it on his own terms, you know? And I think that this is a reasonable and justifiable interpretation of what of what exactly it is that we're seeing in this TV show you know now i said just a second ago that superboy as a legal entity was basically the only part of the superman family of characters that the salkinds owned the rights to anymore at that point in the 80s and so Guys, there comes a point in that TV show, I don't give a shit what this character is called or what the title of this TV show is. He is not Superboy anymore. He is now Superman, but they can't call him that because of legal mumbo-jumbo, right? They can't use the name Superman. But I think starting in the third season, that is exactly who this character is. And again, this is the crucial point of divergence. When this character is left to his own devices to work toward his own destiny, he lives his own life in the process. And in the process, he develops a career. He goes places. He meets people. He gets jobs. And he doesn't necessarily end up working at the Daily Planet alongside Lois Lane. Right? It just doesn't happen. And in this version of of the Superman legend, Lana is clearly the person that he's going to end up with. And this whole idea of going to work for the Daily Planet and marrying Lois and all of that kind of stuff, apparently is just not on the menu for this version of the character. You know, and I kind of like that. I kind of like the fact that, you know, whether it was by legal necessity, or maybe there is some creative intent going on here, this is a truly unique version of Superman that I don't think we've ever seen before, and guys, I honestly don't think we'll ever see again. You know, it's very much its own thing. Now, 
A lot of people will tell you that the show got better and better and better with every passing season. And you know what, guys, they may even be right about that, you know, but here's the thing. That show, at least in terms of my sensibilities and what I look for in my Superman live action, I got to tell you, it just got cheesier and cheesier and cheesier. And it's kind of hard to sit through all of that stuff when Superboy flying around on the screen sounds like a fucking jet for I don't even know what reason. And there's just all of this just cheesiness. Look, guys, if you're into this show, this to you is just the cat's fucking meow. You love it. I'm not trying to take anything away from you. I'm just trying to explore, uh, express why it is that this show, it's kind of hit and miss for me. But I got to tell you, the, the first season of the show, I will be the first to admit it's not perfect. It's, a, it's pretty cheesy in a lot of places. And there are a lot of what the fuck was that kind of plots and, and all of those sorts of things going on. But one of the things that I really like about the first season is that, again, this is a half-hour adventure TV show intended for children in the 80s, all right? And so there's a level of drama and characterization that Superboy as a TV show just does not have time for, okay? There's not enough time to get to all of this stuff. It would be great if there was, but there's not, right? Nevertheless, there is a little bit of characterization and conflict between all of the different characters. And one of the best examples of that that I at least can think of is the episode from the first season called The Russian Exchange Student, where basically T.J. White's girlfriend is suspected of being a Soviet saboteur. And it's basically up to Clark, not necessarily to prove her innocence, so much as to find the truth. And that distinction is actually a source of major conflict between him and TJ. Because from TJ's standpoint, anything less than open and avowed support for his girlfriend, Natasha, I think is her name, basically is the same as calling her a spy and a saboteur and whatever else, a terrorist, whatever you want to call it, right? It's basically the same thing in his imagination. But the way Clark looks at it is, look, I'm just trying to find the truth. If the truth indicts her, hey, I'm sorry. If the truth exonerates her, hey, good for you, you know? And basically what you have is somebody, it's, I guess, the a, a conflict between intuition versus rationality, right? And Clark's rationality is to follow the evidence wherever it goes, you know, even if we don't like the answer. And TJ, not because of any kind of logical reason, not because he's got any kind of coherent motivation, other than the fact that he's a guy and he wants to get laid, he wants to believe that Natasha is innocent. And in his, in his mind, Clark must think that she's guilty, or at least potentially guilty. And it's nothing like that. Clark just wants to find the truth. And there's a, there's there's not much of it in that episode, but there's this little bit of back and forth, this push and pull that's going on between the two characters. And again, it's a half-hour TV show from the 80s, intended for children, so you don't necessarily get into the blood and guts of what that conflict would probably look like in real life. 
but you do get enough of it that you you can get the flavor of it all you know and I for one just kind of enjoy that you know that's not the only time that something like that happened in the first season there were other instances where you know characters they weren't necessarily bickering with one another or they weren't having arguments or anything like that they were just having very different points of view on things and that created conflict not necessarily confrontation but conflict and to me that's just good writing you know that's one of the things that the first season very honestly guys it's not perfect but it does do stuff like that really well and anyway i tend to enjoy it and something else is you know Ilya Salkine, in fact, the Salkines in general, among some, certain people in early certain circles of, inter, of uh, the internet Superman fandom, the Salkines just don't have a very good reputation. And guys, I know I'm not the first one to tell you that, all right? But it it is true, you know? They just don't have... They're just not very, very widely admired, very highly regarded by, let's face it, people who have taken Richard Donner's side in whatever conflict that happened between the Salkinds and Donner, all right? I don't know. I wasn't there. And neither were you, all right? But for a long time, a lot of fans have only really had access to Richard Donner's side of the story, all right? And so because of that, it I think it's kind of easy for people to fall into the trap of assuming that Richard Donner was everything that was right with Superman in the movies, and the Salkinds were everything that was wrong with Superman in the movies. But to me, what really puts the lie to that is the fact that, you know, when you put aside the cheesiness of it all, Superboy as a TV show is very well written, is very well cast. It's not campy the way that people tend to want to use that word a lot, especially these days. You know, this show, it's very much a product of its time. I don't think it's aged very well at all. But you can't really argue that in context, at the time that this show was coming out, this was a pretty well done show, you know? And guys, there's no getting around it. Elias Salkind is the creative mastermind behind the Superboy TV show. So it's kind of hard for me to believe that he's everything that was wrong with the movies when I think his record speaks pretty clearly that he had a vision for Superman. And guys, this is a vision that a lot of people seem to really fucking like, you know? So I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a case where Richard Donner was wearing the white hat and the Salkinds were wearing the black hats and you had good guys and bad guys. And guys, when is anything in life ever that simple, you know? And yet, even though we all know that in our own work situations, somehow we all believe that when it comes to making Superman movies, you gotta have good guys and you've gotta have bad guys. You know, I really wish fandom would just fucking get over that way of thinking already because it's not really helping anybody, you know? So anyway, there's no real deeper significance to any of this stuff. I just wanted to throw it all out there and just see what comes back to me. Now, guys, I'm making all of this shit up as I go along, in case that wasn't obvious. So what I'm going to do right now is take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to have another segment talking about I don't even know what yet. But I am going to come back for a second segment, and I'm going to talk about something. So 
Be right back after these messages to talk about something. Front has come into being for the sole purpose of liberating known kind everywhere. For too long have these wonderful people suffered under the cruel mistreatment of humans. Man has looked down on these poor people for too long only because they are lacking in height. This discrimination must stop, and it's up to each and every one of us to see that it does. No longer shall these once proud people be forced to remain outdoors and fight the elements while their human owners enjoy the comforts of climate control and central heating and air. No longer must gnomes suffer the extreme heat of summer nor the severe and biting cold of winter. Never again shall gnome kind suffer the indignity of being bombarded with bird feces. Never again should a gnome be the victim of a careless pizza delivery driver, for there's no greater fear among the gnomes than that of being crushed by an automobile. With cruelty and carelessness, humans place the gnomes in precarious and dangerous positions, and I say to you, this must stop now. Let this serve as a call to arms to all those who would sympathize with the plight of the garden gnomes. I put it to each and every one of you to take up the fight wherever you see it. This cruelty must stop. The Garden Gnome Liberation Front can be found on Facebook simply by searching for Garden Gnome Liberation Front. Take action. The revolution draws near. ready to talk about something else. One of the something else's that I'm going to talk about is the fact that I am once again fucking sick. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. But there you go. So far in the past three months, I am three for three. I got sick in July or some kind of crud or another. I got sick in August with some other kind of crud or another and now I'm sick again here in September with some crud or another now for those of you keeping score let me just say that I've always kind of prided myself on having a fairly strong immune system and honestly like the reason for that was because for years you know I would basically get sick with some crud or another for like maybe a couple of days and only once per year. That's it, you know? But it's 
the way that the way that things have been shaping up lately, what I'm actually starting to think is that, you know, all those years I spent working from home, you know, where I basically put my immune system in a closet and forgot about it for eight years, maybe those chickens are coming home to roost, you know? I don't know. But anyway, so I guess to move away from health stuff and to talk about things that relate a little bit more to this podcast, what I'm going to be talking about in this segment is Superboy the comic book number one, because of course I'm going to have to find a way to fit comics into this episode, right? It can't be just about a TV show. No, no, you got to find a way to fit comics in there. So that is what I've done. And, guys, I think I've said in the past that I had a little bit of a distaste for adaptations into comics of comic book movies or comic book TV shows or or what have you. And, honestly, the reason for that is maybe I just had a tendency as a kid to overthink shit. Certainly, that is a possibility. You know, it just didn't really seem to make sense to me that... You have this comic that assume, that that presumably is, <coughs> it's, <coughs> excuse me, presumably it's just fucking amazing, right? So amazing is it, in fact, that it's actually used as the basis for a TV show, or it's used as the basis for a movie, or fucking whatever, you know? And... Then there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance which sets in where it's like somebody wants to take this thing, this comic book that inspired a movie and put it right back into a comic book. I mean, that's just fucking weird to me. It just kind of weirded me out when I was a kid and God knows kind of weirds me out even now, you know, that's just my reference point, I guess. So anyway, this comic which is to say Superboy the comic book number one, is sort of, I guess, the beginnings of all of that. But not really, because, you know, as I guess as far as adaptations of... Um, adaptations? This isn't really all that bad. You know, I mean, there's a... It, it's kind of hard to put it into words, but the first time I can really remember struggling with this I guess not so much with like the concept of a comic book adaptation of a comic book adaptation but I guess more in just in terms of like the quality of the thing the first time I can really remember struggling with this was of all things the 1989 Tim Burton movie being adapted into a comic book now that is significant only because of the fact that I actually bought that as a back issue, quote-unquote. And so I actually read that after Superboy the comic book number one, right? But sitting there reading it, there was something about the visuals of uh, of Tim Burton's movie, you know, the costume designs, the makeup designs, the color designs. I don't know what it is, but it's... I can see how a comic book inspired... Tim Burton's movie, I cannot see where that movie makes for all that good a comic book, you know, because it's, I mean, I guess there's nothing wrong with it, necessarily, but I I guess there's, 
there's just something gets lost in in the transition like that, you know? Because when you think about it, you're translating a comic book into live action, and then you in turn translate live action into a comic book. Now, for those of you who came of age during the 80s, I guess you could think of this as being kind of like generations of a VHS uh, tape, where if you make a copy of a VHS tape, the copy's going to look, it's probably going to look pretty good, you know? If you make a copy of the copy, it's not going to look quite as good. If you make a copy of the copy of the copy, this is going to look yet worse, and so on and so forth, right? And I can't help wondering if maybe a similar principle isn't involved with these comic book adaptations of adaptations of comic books, where something gets lost just by virtue of putting it into live action, and so when you put that thing that exists in live action back into a comic book, now you've made a copy of a copy of a copy, and it's just not going to be as good. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I expect I'm going to be coughing a fair amount through this segment, but guys, i got to have something to fill out this episode, and I'm not going to have uh, time later on to record something else, so you'll take what you can get, and you'll like it. Anyway. So... Superboy, the comic book, number one. It's got a cover price of $1. Weren't those the days? A cover date of February of 1990. And the cover artist... Well, in fact, there is no cover artist, because this is a photo cover. It's a picture of Gerard Christopher in full Superboy gear holding, and I do mean literally carrying, physically carrying, Stacy, I don't even know how the fuck to pronounce this chick's name, who plays Lana Lang. And, guys, I gotta tell you, this was a real sort of punch in the gut to me as a comic book cover. I mean, then is now, like the first time I saw Superboy the comic book, number one, just sitting on the shelves, I, guys, I have to tell you, I didn't know what the fuck to think of this thing, you know? I really didn't. Because, you know, on the the title of this comic is Superboy the Comic Book, right? So it, on the one hand, it it wears its purpose and its premise on its sleeve, but on the other hand, this is not a drawn cover. This is a photo cover. So what the fuck is this thing anyway? I mean, is this an ongoing comic book? Is it a one shot? Is this a comic book at all? Um, is this maybe some sort of a tie-in magazine? God knows those were pretty common back in the late 80s and early 90s. And so, you know, what the fuck am I looking I don't know, and I don't want it, you know? That was basically the mentality with which I first greeted uh, seeing Superboy the comic book number one on the shelves. But then I decided, you know what? I'll give it a day in court, you know? I'll, you know, I mean... No matter how bad this comic book is or isn't, it's only a dollar, you know? And guys, I can't help thinking, you know, that maybe that exact same mentality is why the comic book industry, and I'm using it in quote marks here, because God knows the comic book business is not an industry, guys. It's niche of niche of niche. I mean, it's fucking, it's barely there at all. But to whatever degree you want to call, you want to call it, you know, this word, whatever, to whatever degree you want to use this word, the comic book industry, you know, 
I can't help thinking that maybe at least part of the reason that it's taken a significant downturn in terms of sales and circulation and all that stuff isn't at least somewhat due to the the just a dollar mentality, you know, where you might buy a comic book that you know for a fact is shit just by virtue of the fact that, dude, it's only a dollar, you know, for a dollar, I'm willing to be wrong, you know, but for th like $2.99, $3.99, God knows $4.99, you know, when you start getting into that territory, I'm not willing to be wrong, not for that kind of money, you know, and I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be the first one to opine about that, and God knows I'm probably not going to be the last, but if nothing else, I wanted to <coughs> wanted to just throw it out there. Excuse me while I get a sip off my water here. And a drag off of my e-cig. All right, so... The creative team is as follows. John Moore is the writer. Jim Mooney, may he rest in peace, is the penciler. Ty Templeton, of all people, is the inker. Nancy Houlihan is the colorist. John Costanza is the letterer. Jonathan Peterson is the associate editor. Mike Carlin is the editor. Story synopsis, which I'm going to make up as I go along, is as follows. The cough, <clears throat> the cough is not part of the official plot synopsis for those of you taking notes. So, official plot synopsis minus the coughs is as follows. Clark and Lana watch a meteor shower and just kind of pontificate about the fact that, you know what, this is our last night in Smallville before we all go off to college and Motherfucker, what a what a ride it's been so far, and how much things are going to change in the future when they get interrupted by some guy named Pete. I presume it's Pete Ross, but the issue never actually makes that clear, really, one way or the other. Pete and and uh, his, I guess, his non-girlfriend Becky get into an argument over who can win in a race, and so they decide, son of a bitch, we're going for it. We're gonna. We're going to do an illegal street race, and for reasons I can't say I fully understand, Clark never even tries talking them out of it. Disaster strikes when Pete's car gets fucked up in some way or another. Clark whooshes off to the rescue, in his civvies, you understand. Flying through the air, he catches uh, Pete's car as it careens off of a cliff and stops it just short of toppling over. Pete and Becky catch a ride back to, I don't even know what the, I mean, it's not, they're not, I don't really get the idea that Clark and his buddies are all out in the forest camping. And so honestly, you know, like the most I can figure is that this is sort of like a dazed and confused type of a situation where they're just kind of out in a field and, you know, drinking, carousing, having a good time. And that's their version of partying, I guess. And Guys, I got to tell you, you know, one of the things that when I was a teenager, you understand, one of the things that was kind of a big deal at that time was the movie Clueless. It had 
come out in uh, movie theaters like the year before something something like that, and it was a big fucking deal, big fucking deal on cable, right? Where HBO was playing it every two seconds, and one of the things that happens, in fact, it's kind of important to the story of the movie, is that Alicia Silverstone, I forget her character's name, but it's irrelevant, um, Alicia Silverstone <coughs> goes on a date of sorts. <coughs> eh, more water. Goes on a date of sorts. And she goes to a party of sorts. Now, this is a this was a, I guess, a mode and a manner of partying that just did not happen in my town. Right? You know that type of partying where everybody puts on their their Sunday best, you know they get all spiffed up and dolled up and all that stuff. So Sunday best maybe isn't the best way to put it, but fuck it, I'm not editing too much of anything out of this segment. So they get all dolled up and they're inside of somebody's house, and of course it's this very you know upper middle class or maybe just flat out just fucking upper class type of atmosphere, type of scene and venue. Everybody's drinking and you know, having a good time and all that stuff. And that's just not the mode of partying that went on in my town, where, again, it kind of was more similar to Dazed and Confused, where it's out in a fucking field somewhere, and some jackass is out there, I don't know, cow-tipping, probably. And overall, it's basically just very redneck, maybe is the best way to put it. And that's kind of what this little party scene here reminds me of, you know? Where, yeah, they're out there partying and stuff, but this isn't like the clueless style of partying. This is more like dazed and confused uh, type of partying. So anyway, after that, everybody starts talking about the fact that, you know what? There have been a lot of close calls going around lately. I mean, it seems like a guardian angel's been keeping tabs on all of us, Becky. Remember when Lori got caught in that barn fire or when when... Dominic broke his leg climbing climbing around the, the gym rafters during break. Nobody knows how they got rescued. Not even Lori or Dominic. And Lana kind of uses that to sort of transition into kind of snuggling up to Clark and saying, that's one thing I like about you, Clark. You'd never do anything that foolish. You've got your feet firmly planted on the... What the fuck is this shit? You, you, it's all over your hand. What is this stuff? Is this is this motor oil? And so Clark says, Hey, dude, it's getting kind of late. Maybe we need to be going home. And so after that, Clark goes home. He shoots the shit with Jonathan and Martha for a while. Uh, Jonathan says that, Look, dude, things are going to change for you in a big, bad way once you get off to college. So... Just be ready for what comes. From there, cut to the bus station where Clark and Lana get on the bus. They get on the bus. They then go to Schuster University where Clark finally unpacks all of his stuff. And one of the things he discovers is that Martha left him this weird-looking outfit to wear, which Clark at first assumes is a set of pajamas, and so he plans to wear it to bed that night, at which time he gets interrupted by the arrival of his brand new roommate, Mr. T.J. White himself, who basically says, yeah, 
look, I am, in fact, Perry White's son, but look, this whole photojournalist thing, maybe that's going to pay the bills, but music, comedy, these things are what T.J. White is all about. And basically, T.J.'s kind of portrayed as a sort of party animal, 'er ne'er-do-well type. A fact which I shall be revisiting momentarily. From there, (coughs) we cut to the all-purpose Schuster University Science Lab, where a group of egghead scientists, including Professor Peterson, are doing basically research on what looks to be a, a, a piece of meteorite, which all of a sudden starts glowing and then knocks out power all across the campus. Meanwhile, Clark, Lana, and TJ are attempting to finalize their school schedules when the power goes out and TJ decides, hey, fuck it, let's go get something to eat. So from there, Clark breaks away from the, from the group. He swings by the all-purpose hospital slash clinic, puts their blood supply on ice using his Arctic breath, and then from there... He rejoins the group and gets, again, interrupted by this giant fucking pink explosion, which smashes TJ against the side of a building and knocks his ass out. Lana says that she'll stay with TJ, so Clark swings back, uh, swings back to his dorm, puts on the pajamas that, that Martha gave him, and then makes his official public debut as Superboy. He intercepts the meteorite that's now really fucking glowing, pink and bright and tries to make contact with it begin but then gets knocked on his ass so instead what he does is he uses the floor underneath the meteorite as a buffer breaks the floor around the meteorite free flies it out over the ocean because remember guys they are in florida here flies it out over the ocean drops the meteorite into the drink And then he makes contact with the alien uh, traveler, which is a a being of pure energy, who can barely even speak, but at least has enough English to say that Superboy isn't from Earth. Finally, on the last page, Clark and Lana have once again paired back up with each other at Schuster University. They run into TJ, and all all of the student body and the newspaper are talking about this mysterious Superboy who flew the meteorite away to places unknown. And Lana says, hey, he's kind of cute in that costume. And Clark says, I think life at Schuster is going to be a lot different than Smallville. And I think I'm going to like it that way. The end. So, what did I think? Well, taking it from the top, again, this is a photo cover. And... That's a damn shame because the cover artist for future issues is Kevin McGuire. All right. Kevin freaking McGuire. But his art is nowhere to be found on this cover. Nope. It's just a sort of generic promotional picture from the show. And it hurts just to think about what might have been. But. I guess apart from that, this is, yes, it's a generic promotional picture on the cover. It's not really that bad, you know? And I've always sort of had a kind of a love-hate relationship with this version of the Superboy outfit. 
it's I, I've never really been able to put my finger on it, but something just seems off with it somehow. And I don't know. It's it's hard to explain, but at least on this cover, it doesn't look too bad. Then again, Stacy, what's her name, kind of blocks a good part of the uh, a good part of the uh, suit here with her bottom. So, make of all of this whatever you want. Uh, getting into the the actual story, though. You know, right here on page one, this sort of campfire, sing-along, dazed and confused type of party that's going on. Like I say, I mean, it, it kind of has resonance with me and that, you know, these are the kinds of parties that went on in the town in which I grew up. So certainly there is that to think about. But if you want to think about this, I, I guess a little bit more sort of in-universe, this isn't the first time that Clark and Lana have done something like this. You know, uh, just going out, uh, you know, outdoors, into the woods, just kind of hanging around and just, I guess, enjoying country life, you know? And, you know, Clark's upbringing in Smallville and all of that kind of stuff, that's not something that the that Superboy as a TV show touched upon all that much. You know, basically their story starts whenever he's in college. And then pretty much it goes on from there. Because again, this is this was a half hour long adventure show aimed for kids in the 1980s. So depth of characterization like that, guys, there just wasn't time for stuff like that, you know? So we do get little bits of it occasionally in the comic book, though. And I think this is one of the things that you know, no, this is not the greatest comic in the history of comics, but it's really not all that bad either, you know, because uh, it does give a little bit more characterization to things than the show occasionally had time for, you know. So anyway, that does kind of lead into a little bit of a question, though, at least that I have that, you know, what exactly is this comic? Because at the time that this comic came out, the second season of Superboy, it was pretty well underway, you know? And so the model for Clark logically should be Gerard Christopher at this point, you know? And there seems to be some, I guess, some indication of that. I mean, the way that Clark is drawn, the way that Superboy... <coughs> the way that Superboy is occasionally drawn, he does sort of resemble uh, Gerard Christopher, at least somewhat in this comic, but, you know, in most cases. But in other cases, it there's a little bit of a, of a similarity to John Hames Newton. So the most I can figure is that Jim Mooney is basically trying to split the difference between John Hames Newton and Gerard Christopher. I leave his exact measure of success in that up to you you know but one thing is for sure this is a clark that's a little bit taller and a little bit more broad-shouldered and a little bit more muscular than most other people you know and that's apparent really at the bottom of uh, page one where clark seems to pretty well tower over just about everybody and he's a lot blockier and a lot more massive 
than most people. So just kind of interesting is what I'm saying. Moving right along, you know, we get into the would-be car crash on pages two and three. And right here on page two at the bottom, there's a kind of neat little moment where Clark just, he flies off away from the campfire and he moves so fast, he's literally just a blur. And I always like it when Clark is drawn to move that way. You know, it's it's not necessarily like superior to other ways of showing super speed. I just like this approach, you know? So anyway, getting into page three, and this actually has the title of the story, which I realize now I didn't actually give you, but the title of this story is The Superboy. We see this sort of glory shot of Clark flying through the air, and he's catching Pete's car from the underside so that Pete can't actually see him. And he basically saves Pete from uh, crashing and flying off the cliff. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, one of the kind of neat things about this, and I'm sure this was completely un uh, unintentional, but one of the kind of neat things about this is in Smallville, the show Smallville, there was an episode uh, called uh, uh, Suspect from the second season. And Pete is shown driving this old 1980s Camaro. And <coughs> I'm going to get a sip off my Mountain Dew, goodness. Anyway, Pete is shown driving around in this 1980s Camaro. And number one, I, I just kind of like that. You know, the idea that the residents of Smallville aren't exactly rich, and so they don't necessarily drive brand new cars. Now, that's, I guess, the in-universe explanation for why Pete drove that car. The Probably the real-world explanation for why Pete drove that car is because the showrunners and the producers and whatnot knew that they were going to blow that car up in, in this episode, and they didn't want to basically waste money on a brand new car, knowing that they're just going to blow the damn thing up in the end, right? So, <coughs> to me, <clears throat> that's the more likely explanation. And the reason I'm making kind of a point of this is that in this issue, Pete is driving an 80s Camaro once again, but at this time, that was a new car. So, so much for small town poverty, I suppose. Anyway, so from there, I'm just going to skip ahead a couple of pages. Uh, Clark and Lana arrive at Schuster University, and basically Lana recognizes all of this as a chance for reinvention, you know? Who she was in Smallville doesn't necessarily have to be who she is here at Schuster University. And, you know, this is something that I think a lot of a lot of college kids experience, you know, whenever they finally get there. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody cares who you are. And the boxes that you were sort of trapped in uh, back in high school... They don't have to define you anymore, you know? And Lana's experimenting a little bit with all that by not wearing such 
Mary Tyler Moore types of clothes. She lets her hair down. And she overall just looks a little bit more uh, relaxed, you know? And then, of course, she and uh, Clark get almost immediately interrupted by the arrival of T.J. White. And it does need to be said that the version of T.J. White that we see in this comic is totally different from the T.J. White from the TV show. The comic book version of T.J. has the TV show version's love of music and comedy, but that's just about where the similarities end, you know, because the the TV show TJ, maybe he's best described as earnest, but stupid. You know, he's got a good heart. He means well, but I just don't see this guy going very far in life, you know, at least not as a photojournalist. The comic book TJ is a little bit more of a partying sort of ne'er-do-well. And he just doesn't seem very much like TJ from the show. (coughs) And so I guess what I'm saying is this is virtually a wholesale reimagining of TJ as a character. And anyway, and so from there... Clark lets himself into his dorm room. And if memory serves, the dorm that we see in this comic doesn't look very much like the dorm that he and TJ had in the first season of the show. Actually looks a little bit more like the the, uh, dorm room that uh, Clark had with Andy McAllister in the second season. So again, it just kind of calls into question, what is this comic book? Exactly, you know? So, moving right along, and I guess speaking of which, there's a lot of uh, potential discontinuity going on here where the first episode of the Superboy TV show seemed to show Superboy's big public debut. But the comic presents us with a totally different public debut. So, which is it, guys? I mean, there's this kind of... I mean, don't get me wrong. This is a a sort of a fun and exciting action sequence where Superboy makes his big public debut. And he, as I say, looks very Gerard Christopher-ish through most of it. And this is a Superboy that you can fairly well expect. He's, He's pretty well mastered a lot of his powers by this point, but he's never really used them to do this type of stuff before and never so publicly, you know, so he's basically, he doesn't really know exactly what he's doing here. So when he zooms in close to the meteorite on uh, page 18, uh, he basically touches the thing. And then of course that knocks him on his ass, sends him flying. And so from there, what he decides to do is refine his tactics And he basically uses the floor as a buffer between him and the meteorite. (coughs) And basically uses that to carry the meteorite out to sea. Sort of like it's on a tray. And then drop it into the ocean. Which he makes a point of saying he's not overly fond of that. But he doesn't know 
really what else to do. You know, it's like it doesn't occur to him to fly it into outer space. And I kind of like that. You know, I mean, this is a Superboy who's got his thinking cap on. He just doesn't know how to be this, you know? And I like it. It plays for me. So, anyway. <coughs> Sorry, guys. I'm just trying to get through this as best I can. So, uh, I'm actually going to get another... <coughs> Another sip of my Mountain Dew. All right. So, page 22. Number one, Lana's dressed kind of like a hooker. And number two, she seems awfully uh, cozy with Clark all through this comic. And... <coughs> And, uh, <coughs> and indeed, she was cozy with Clark all through the first season of the show. And I can't help thinking that that might be because Stacy, what's her name, and John Hames Newton really were dating for real behind the scenes. And so maybe that came out a little bit in the show. I don't really know. But in the second season, there's a noticeable distance between the two of them, and by which I mean Clark and Lana, and arguably that distance would always be there. And so, anyway, I guess the point is, Lana's awfully cozy with Clark in this issue. That's what I'm saying. Just like she was in the first season of the show, and like the first season, it, it happens so much that you can't help wondering if they really are just friends. So... Anyway, all in all, fun little issue. I enjoy it. And <coughs> this comic, <coughs> I guess as an ongoing thing, as a title, it could be pretty hit and miss. Arguably more hit, at least to start with, than miss, but definitely more misses as time went on. Again, depending on what your standards are. But this first issue, not so bad, you know? Not really bad at all, except for the, you know, the, the discontinuity that I was mentioning. This is kind of a weird comic. It's, I mean, I wish I could say that it's a product of its time, except it's not, you know? It's just kind of there, you know? It's just, it's a weird sort of artifact. One of the things I'll say for it, though, is that Superboy as I guess a concept had been out of continuity for so long in the Burn comics by this point that I think a lot of fans might have picked up this comic not because of the TV show connection but simply because they missed Superboy you know as an idea they missed Superboy and so maybe this filled I don't know a hole in the market as it were so guys I'm sicker and shit. That's about the best I can manage for this week. So bye, everybody. I'll see you next week.
Sawete. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. 
Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. Thank you.